Well, thank you, Billy, so much, and uh, what an appropriate song to sing this morning, uh, especially on uh, Billy's last official Sunday, filling in as our worship leader at Lakeside Bible Church. We appreciate that, man. And I think that's, um, we'd all agree that's your signature song, man. You introduced this, uh, that song to us, and uh, uh, we, we just love that song, and you've just done an outstanding job uh, filling in for Blake while we waited for the Lord to provide. Chris, and so, man, just thanks so much for being a, w- a willing servant and uh, really leading our worship team over these last uh, few months, and I know they, they're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you being up here because you do such a great job, and uh, I think that song will go down in history as a song that almost got this church to clap. <laughs> almost. We were that close, man. We were all that close. David, you were working real hard trying to get us to get out of our frozen chosen uh, uh, mindset here. And uh, anyway, and, uh, and Carl, you were just making me feel like I was back in Africa, okay? I mean, that's just what they, uh, seriously, that's the way they, the brothers get down in Africa, man. They don't mess around when it comes to worship. And uh, it is a full body experience. And uh, it, it's really a joy to, to worship with folks uh, in Africa because it really, it's humbling, because it's like, you like really mean what you're singing here. You like are really thinking about what you're saying. And it, it's really causing you to rejoice, um, not just mentally and vocally, but physically. And so we're grateful for that. Well, when I l- left for Africa, I had uh, every intention of picking up this morning uh, in John chapter 18, where we had left off a, a couple weeks ago. In fact, that's why you have it in the bulletin that we were going to be in John 18, but Uh, Hopefully we can pick that up next week, uh, because one of the messages that I was preaching uh, these last two and a half weeks while I was overseas uh, just probably stuck out to me as maybe one of the more helpful, practical uh, sermons uh, that uh, I was teaching and seemed to be resonating the most with the guys that I was teaching and and, uh, um, just got probably the best response from and I thought about this, and I thought, you know, I've never actually preached this uh, in church. Uh, I've taught it to the women's ministry uh, a while back when they were going through the book of Philippians. Um, I taught it on a Wednesday night a few years ago, but never uh, have taught this particular passage on Sunday morning. And so, here we go. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. And uh, this is a very familiar text, I'm sure, to most of us. Uh, we, at least we've heard of these, uh, the two names that are mentioned here in this text. But uh, I think sometimes we just breeze over this and don't really think about what uh, there is for us to glean from uh, this, this account of Yodi and Syntyche here in, in, in Philippians chapter 4. Let's read it together, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Father, we thank you for your precious word We thank you that it is uh, really everything we need for life and godliness, and I pray that your spirit would now illuminate this text to our minds and our hearts to understand what 
uh, Paul was saying here, and, and uh, Lord, I pray you'd help us, or to make practical application of it in our lives and in our relationships, uh, Lord, in our families, uh, in, in our workplaces, Lord, our communities, and Lord, in this church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've titled this particular text, Diffusing Disunity, Diffusing Disunity. And disunity is one of the most common problems that churches face. It's also one of the most deadly. Disunity acts like cancer that eats away at the church, and if left unchecked, it will eventually kill a church. And that's why the Apostle Paul was so passionate about maintaining unity and harmony within the churches that he planted and that he shepherded, and he regularly addressed this subject in his letters and even confronted Specific situations where disunity or dissension or strife existed. Let me give you a few examples. Notice what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, specifically, that each, of, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas. And the really spiritual people were saying, well, I am of Christ. And so there was these divisions going on in the church in Corinth, and Paul uh, didn't even get 10 verses into uh, his letter here to them where he's addressing this, he's tackling this disunity uh, within that church. Uh, In Ephesians chapter uh, 4, here Paul says uh, this to the the members of the church in Ephesus, he says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so he gives them some character qualities that they need to be demonstrating, uh, emulating, uh, if they want to maintain the unity that the Spirit has achieved for us uh, through Christ's death on the cross. Uh, and then to the letter uh, to the churches in Rome, uh, Rome, uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, he says this, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And then one other passage would be Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, there uh, Paul was writing to Titus who was overseeing the churches on the island of Crete, and this is what he said in Titus chapter 3 verse 9, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And then here in his letter to the Philippian church, he went as far as to publicly call out two people by name whose falling out with one another apparently was common knowledge in the church. Now, the Philippian church was a model church in many ways. In fact, it's obvious that Paul 
loved this church, had a very special relationship with this church. Notice here in Philippians 4 verse 1, he says, therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way stand from the Lord, my beloved. Two times he calls them beloved. And yet as you read through this letter that he sent them, you pick up some hints along the way that the Christians in Philippi were not as unified as they should have been. It seems like there was some kind of conflict or division uh, underneath the surface in the church. For example, Philippians 1 verse 27 He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then he goes on to say uh, here in verse 14 of chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so you kind of pick up this idea that, hey, not all is well in the church in Philippi. And then those suspicions are confirmed when you get to chapter 4, where Paul names two ladies who had an open conflict with each other. And we don't know much about this conflict other than it was a serious enough conflict for Paul to address it publicly. Apparently, these two ladies were prominent members in the Philippian church who either had some personal conflict, they'd gotten sideways with one another, they'd gotten cross-threaded with one another, or maybe they were leaders of two opposing factions that were developing in the church. But notice, however, there was no doubt in Paul's mind that these ladies were genuine Christians. Look at the end of verse 3. He calls them fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, these two ladies may have been two of Paul's original converts. If you remember back in Acts 16, Paul went to the city of Philippi and he went down to the river and began to evangelize there. And there was a bunch of ladies by the river. Lydia was one of them. And uh, it's likely that Euodia and Syntyche were there as well. And again, notice he considered them to be co-laborers in the cause of Christ. He said, I ask you also, help these women, verse 3, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, along with the rest of my fellow workers. Interesting. Wayne Mack, in his helpful book, Life in the Father's House, says this, quote, conflict and contention can occur between any two Christians, even if they've been committed to Christ and serving him for many years. Also, disunity and dissension can happen in any church body, no matter how faithful that church has been in the past. In fact, church splits sometimes begin with fights between those who formerly worked together in the body when it was growing and otherwise successful. How does this happen? Mac asks, well, the answer is a failure to resolve interpersonal conflicts biblically. He goes on to say this, if we want to avoid such disunity in the church, it will be helpful for us to understand how the normal flow of human relationships can turn into a flood of seemingly irreparable discord. Some form of conflict is inevitable in any relationship involving two sinful people, but a proper approach to that difficulty will resolve it and bring the parties closer together. If an initial conflict is not handled properly, however, the problem will begin snowballing and eventually lead to an avalanche of disharmony. I think that is an accurate description of what happens in a lot of relationships. 
When initial conflicts aren't resolved biblically, the problem snowballs into a seemingly irreparable discord. I see this, sadly, um, in much of the marriage counseling that I've done over the years, where a small um, slight, uh, an unkind word, a a thoughtless act uh, between a husband and wife goes unresolved, unreconciled. Uh, maybe a husband uh, speaks a harsh word to his wife as he walks out the door on his way to work, and when he gets home, uh, he never acknowledges that. The wife never talks to him about that. They go to bed, and a day goes on, a week goes on, a month goes on, a year goes on, and, and, and that happens over and over again, and there's never any reconciliation. Or maybe a, a husband desires to be with his wife in an intimate way, and, and, and she kind of pushes him away, and, and he gets bitter in his heart towards his wife, and, and uh, he goes off to work, comes home, they never talk about it, they never pray about it, they never work to resolve that, and, and, and a week goes by, a, a month goes by, a year goes by, and that happens over and over and over again, and then five, ten years into the marriage, they're sitting in my office, and they have irreconcilable differences. How'd that happen? How did they get there? It was these little unresolved conflicts. And I think it's natural for us to think at points that, you know, it's just too late to resolve the conflict. It's too far gone. The damage has already been done. There's nothing that you or anyone else can do to diffuse the problem. Well, I, for one, believe that there is something you can do about it. You can follow the directions that Paul gave Yodi and Syntyche in this passage. Because what we have before us here in these three verses is a divinely inspired solution for resolving conflict biblically. This is Biblical Conflict Resolution 101. And and in these three verses, Paul provided five directions for diffusing disunity among church members. Now, these five directions can be used to resolve a conflict in any situation, not just in the church, but between a husband and wife, between a brother or sister, a parent, a child, a boss, an employee, between two friends, between two factions in a church... If we carefully follow the directions that Paul gives us here, we will be able to diffuse the ticking time bomb that threatens to blow up your marriage, uh, your family, a a friendship, or a church. We've all, uh, I'm sure, seen a, a scene in a movie where somebody, some evil villain started some time bomb that's going to blow up you know, uh, New York City, and so the, the hero comes in, and he's only got like a minute, right, as the clock is ticking down to defuse that bomb, to dismantle that bomb, and so he's on the phone with somebody, and he's giving him steps. Okay, step number one, find the green wire. Okay, number two, cut the red wire. Number three, tie that together and push this button, and, and, and you got to follow these directions, and we're all sweating as we're watching this, and at the very last second, he does the last thing, and whew, New York City is saved, Right? It doesn't blow up. Because why? Because he followed the directions and he was able to defuse or dismantle the bomb. Some of you may have a bomb ticking in your marriage this morning. Some of you may have a bomb ticking at your workplace. I trust there's no bombs ticking here at Lakeside Bible Church. But the point is that we have a way to defuse that bomb so it doesn't blow up your family, blow up your marriage, blow up your workplace, blow up your neighborhood, blow up your church. What are these directions? Well, number one, don't ever run away from conflict. Don't ever run away from conflict. Notice verse one, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 
Remain resolute, stable in the face of trial or temptation. Don't waver, don't shrink back, don't crack or crumble under the pressure. Hang in there, don't quit. This is one of Paul's favorite words, the stand firm. Uh, it's, it's a military word that depicts a soldier standing at a post in the midst of a, a raging battle. Probably we know it best from Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, verse 10 through 14, where he talks about the, the armor of God and how we have been given armor by the Lord that we might stand firm against the enemy. And so when the bullets are flying and the bombs are exploding and you feel like you're surrounded on all sides, don't panic, don't be afraid, and definitely don't run away. Stand courageously in the power and the strength that the Lord gives you. Listen, God didn't give us armor for us to retreat but to advance and to stand. And I think we just have to come to grips with something, and that's this. Conflict is inevitable. There's no such thing as a conflict-free relationship or a conflict-free family or a conflict-free church. As long as sinners are together, we're going to clash. I mean, what were you expecting when you got married? You married a sinner, and you're a sinner. Well, what do you think is going to happen when you get two sinners living in close quarters in the same house? There's going to be some sin going on. And then multiply that times 400, you get 400 sinners under the one roof of a church, you, you're bound to have some conflict. That's just the way it is. And the easiest way to deal with this conflict is to what? Run away from it. That's why couples get divorced. That, that's the easy solution, just run away. That's why people leave the church. When they have conflict with someone in the church, they just they, they disappear, they run away. And I think most of us spend our whole lives running away from conflict, and we leave a whole bunch of loose ends blowing in the breeze in our lives. I love what Jay Adams said in his Christian Counselor's Manual. He said, one of the greatest difficulties between husbands and wives, parents and children, and various members of a congregation who have had poor interpersonal relationships is the problem of loose ends. Loose ends are those interpersonal problems between Christians that remain unresolved. Problems between Christians should not continue unresolved. When they do, strength is sapped from the congregation and members work at cross purposes. Unresolved problems hurt everyone and dishonor Christ's name. There is no place, therefore, for such loose ends in the church. God does not allow for loose ends. Rather, he insists that every personal difficulty that arises must be settled. Whatever comes between Christians must be removed. Every difference must be cleared up by reconciliation. I love that. And he goes on to talk about uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, which says... If you are bringing your offering before the Lord and you know that your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? You leave your offering there and go make it right. Go be reconciled with your brother. Uh, The Bible also says, Matthew 18, that if your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Go and show him his sin. So whether you've sinned against someone else or at least someone has been offended by something you've said or not said or done or not done, they feel like you've sinned against them, or someone has sinned against you, what is your biblical responsibility? To go. To go. Either way, you have a responsibility to go to the other person. Whether you know they have something against you, it says you need to go. And if you have something against them, guess what? 
you need to go. It's never right to run away or even to sit and wait for the other person to come to us. Sometimes we're like that. Well, they, that's their problem. If they have a problem with me, they're going to have to come to me. Well, that's unbiblical. That's ungodly. If you think they have something against you, you go to them and you make it right. And so diffusing disunity starts with a commitment to pursue biblical reconciliation. We must be committed to do whatever it takes to tie up any loose ends in our lives. That's the first direction. Never run away from conflict. Number two, take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Notice what he says in verse 2, I urge Eodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Notice he, he says, I urge Eodi and I urge Syntyche. Paul was holding both of these ladies responsible for this conflict, this problem. He was careful not to take sides here because he knew that in some way they were both at fault. And so whenever we're we have a conflict with someone, it's, it's a lot easier for us to see what the other person is doing wrong, isn't it? And it's real easy. If Kel and I get sideways with one another um, every you know, six years or so, I'm just kidding, um, every week or so, right, we get sideways with one another, it's real, I, can, man, I can see what she's doing wrong real easy. But oftentimes I'm blind to what I'm doing wrong or what I'm saying or, or not saying. It's a lot more difficult to see what we're doing wrong. Why? Because we're experts at blame shifting, shifting the blame. We're professional finger pointers. I mean, it's in our nature. It's, it's Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember when, when uh, they sin and they hid and all of a sudden God shows up and he says, hey, Adam, why are you hiding? And before he could get anything outside of his mouth, he's like, it's the woman you gave me, God. It was, I was fine. I was all by myself and it was your idea to put me to sleep, take out one of my ribs and give me this woman. It's, just, it's her fault and it's ultimately your fault, God. And then, the, and, and then the woman said, well, the serpent, right? Everybody's shifting blame in the garden and pointing fingers at, at everyone else but themselves. And as long as we keep focusing on what the other person did or is doing or didn't do or is not doing, the conflict will never be resolved. The first thing we need to do is to examine ourselves to see what we're doing to contribute to the problem. Sometimes I'll do this uh, in, a, in a counseling situation where uh, for 45 minutes I'll just let a couple talk and they'll be basically be pointing fingers at each other for the first 45 minutes saying, well, he does this and well, he does this, she does this, she doesn't do this. And, and, I'm, and I'm just listening to all this, taking notes and trying to size the situation up. And I said, okay, time out. <laughs> Everybody take your finger and point at each other. Go ahead, point at each other. And, and so they're pointing at each other and I say, okay, that's what you've been doing for the last 45 minutes. Now take your hand and go like this, because that's, that's the only way you're ever going to solve your marriage problems, is you stop pointing the finger at each other, and you start pointing this finger at yourself. Based on Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 through 5, that talks about the log and the speck, you hypocrite, how, how can, here you are trying to take the speck out of your spouse's eye, or your brother's eye, and you've got a big old log in your own eye. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your wife's eye, your husband's eye, or your brother or sister in Christ's eye. In other words, you need to come up with a log list. That's another homework assignment I'll often give is, hey, I know you could give me a list, you just did, of all the things that your spouse is doing wrong, but how about what are you doing wrong? I want you to go home and think about what you're doing wrong. What are you doing to contribute to this problem? Write out the logs in your eye. What sins are you committing? 
The, the point is, God holds us all responsible for our part in the disunity or the disharmony, whether it's in your marriage, your family, your friendship, your, your church, whatever it is. And in order for it to be diffused, there must not only be mutual recognition of fault, okay, I, I did this, this is a log in my eye here, but there also must be mutual repentance and mutual forgiveness. Biblical reconciliation always involves repentance and forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 3. He said this, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. This is in the spirit of the 70 times seven. In other words, you can never out-sin God's forgiveness. Nor should we have anyone in our lives who can out-sin our forgiveness. That if, if your spouse sins against you, does the same thing seven times in one day and comes back genuinely sorry and genuinely repentant, you forgive them. And so we need to learn to confess our sins, obviously first to God. Seek His forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then we must confess our sins to each other and forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 32? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Have you ever gone to God seeking forgiveness for something you've done and get this response? I'll think about it. I'm working on it. Uh, come back and see me next week. Right? That's not, that's not how God forgives us. Now, granted, it's not easy to forgive some sins that have been committed against us. It does take a while to work through that. But I think there should be an initial heart to want to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Because whatever someone has done to you to offend you doesn't even begin to compare with what you've done to offend God. And so we need to be quick to forgive. And so uh, I think a normal conversation, every husband and wife should regularly be saying things like, you know what, honey, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Sometimes I actually make couples say that in my office. It's kind of awkward, but I get the sense that they've never said those words have never come out of their mouths before. So I'm, I'm like, let me just prime the pump a little bit here. Go ahead and say it. I was wrong. So, uh, <laughs> I was wrong. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. That, that exchange has to be happening all the time, multiple times a day in most families. I think the key to, to resolving conflict is, 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 is good forgivers. You need to have good forgivers, people that know how to forgive. And, and those people that realize how much they've been forgiven are quick to forgive. They're quick to forgive. Unfortunately, too many of us don't realize that we're the worst sinners that we know. We think our spouse is a bigger sinner than we are. And we're self-righteous. Or our kids are bigger, worse sinners than we are. So we, we self-righteously berate our children. Instead of realizing, you know what? You may have just done that, but I, I've got way worse sin in my life, son or daughter. Uh, we look across the church and go, 
man, that guy, man, someday he'll be like me, maybe. More spiritual, like me, more like Christ, like me. Oh, listen, if you don't consider yourself the worst sinner that you know in this church, then you don't get it. See, when we have that mentality, that humility and genuine, sincere humility, then guess what? Who are, who are you to hold, withhold forgiveness from someone else, right? You're, you're quick to confess, to admit, hey, I, I obviously, I, I know I'm a sinner. I must have done something here to, to mess this relationship up. Would you please forgive me? So seek forgiveness, offer forgiveness. Number three, maintain Christ-like attitudes and actions. Maintain Christ-like attitudes and actions. Notice what he says here in verse 2. I urge Yodi and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony. Notice, in the Lord. Literally, be of the same mind. And whose mind are we to be, to, are to have as Christians? The mind of Christ. Notice back in chapter 2 here. Philippians chapter 2, after talking about maintaining, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, he says this in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What causes disunity? What, what is at the root of disunity? It says right there in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3, selfishness and pride. When you get sideways with your spouse, you get sideways with your parents, you get sideways with your brothers or sisters, you get sideways with another Christian, it's because one or both of you are being selfish and prideful. You can always trace it back. Somebody's being selfish, somebody's being prideful. And so the key, the key to unity, the key to unity is humility. If there's, if there's any disunity going on in any relationships in your life, the key is humility. Start being humble. And we need to be more concerned about others than we are for ourselves. We need to stop thinking about what others can do for us and start thinking about what we can do for them. That's what Jesus did. And, and Paul went on here to talk about Christ's sacrifice here, he, he humbly, selflessly, sacrificially left the glories of heaven in verse 6, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He, what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that so that we could experience reconciliation. The cross was Christ's way of resolving the conflict between us and God. We were enemies of God, and now we're friends. We've been reconciled through the blood of Christ, and it happened through His humble servant attitude, His selfless, sacrificial actions. And so in order for us to experience reconciliation in our relationships with others... We must demonstrate the same attitudes and the same actions that Christ did. We need to be Christ-like. Number four, we need to work together to resolve the conflict. We need to work together to resolve the conflict. Notice uh, v- verse three here. 
He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. Paul calls out to his companion or comrade, Suzagos in the Greek here, which means yoke fellow. So the idea is, is very vivid here of two oxen pulling the, the same load together. So the idea is we're working together here. And most likely this, this comrade, this companion, uh, could have been actually a, 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 a name, a proper name of someone in the church named Suzagos, maybe one of the elders of the church, uh, Philippians 1.1. He says to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers or elders and deacons. So it may have been that Paul was appealing to this elder to live up to his name. He was yoke fellow and to come alongside and help these ladies reconcile their differences. Apparently, Yodi and Syntyche had not asked anyone else to help them resolve their difficult situation. And so sometimes... it's helpful to have a third party involved to resolve some conflict. Maybe, maybe you, you've, you've, you're at an impasse with someone, whether it's your spouse or, or something in your, a person in your family or maybe it's someone in the community or maybe it's someone here in our church and you're at an impasse and you've tried and you've, you, you, you've tried to be reconciled and it just hasn't worked. There's still something between you. Well, guess what? I think the next step is for you to get somebody else involved to, to help. And, and, and to appeal to those who, who, whom God has gifted and equipped to come alongside those who are struggling with some conflict in their life, whether it's a pastor or an elder or a grow group leader or, or, or someone who's discipling you, an older, mature woman or man uh, in your life. Um, the, the fact is, the Bible says that all of us have both the ability and the responsibility to come alongside one another and help overcome sinful situations. Romans 15, 14 talks about how we are all competent to counsel one another. Galatians 6, 1 says, brethren, if you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Matthew 18 talks about that. If you see a brother in sin, that that you have a responsibility to go to him, and if he doesn't listen, then you go get one or two other witnesses, and, and you come back and talk to him again about it. Again, you're working together to rescue the straying sheep. And if that doesn't work, then you get the whole church involved. The whole idea is working together. And unfortunately, not many churches do that. They, they kind of leave, they kind of turn the other way. They, they see somebody and, and they just turn the other way and they go, oh, that'll, that'll work itself out over time. It's none of my business. No, guess what? It is your business. God made it your business. And, and, and because we all kind of look the other way and we don't resolve conflict, the, the church is filled with a bunch of unresolved problems, a bunch of loose ends. And so the point is this, if, if anyone in our church, for example, stirs up strife or spreads dissension by their words or their actions, the rest of us have an obligation to gently and humbly confront them and lovingly seek to restore them to fellowship with God and the church. And if, we, and if they refuse our repeated efforts to, to restore them and give them ample time to repent and, and they don't, then the Bible says that we are to reluctantly cut off fellowship with them. Titus 3.10, right? Reject the factious man after 
a first and second warning. So diffusing disunity requires all of us to work together to restore our relationship with God and with each other. God never expected us or intended us to have to sort some of these things out by ourselves. And while I use examples of marriage counseling, trust me, if you were to come, uh, you're not going to be the, the next sermon illustration, uh, and, and uh, you, hopefully you'll be met with grace and love, because uh, I'll be the first one to say, you know what? No temptation has overtaken you, but that was just common to man. And oh, by the way, Kelly and I were just struggling with that last night. Same, same thing. Now, she may not have a, had a knife in her hand chasing me around the kitchen, but it was basically the same issue at the root level. <laughs> Um, so again, hopefully you'll receive great grace because listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a worse sinner than anybody here in this church. And so, and I know that I have the propensity to do far worse than whatever you're doing. Do you believe that? Not that I could do that, but could you do that? (laughs) Do you believe that you could do that? If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, right? And so finally, the last direction here that Paul gives, and uh, you can tell I'm, I'm editing on the fly here for the sake of time. Uh, I had an hour and a half to teach this uh, in uh, South Africa, so I'm just giving you the high points here, but hopefully we're, it's what you need most. So the last point here, last direction, contend for the cause of Christ. Contend for the cause of Christ. And, and to me, this is the most important thing right here. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. That word struggle, have shared my struggle, is the word athleo, which we get, of course, the English word athlete. So the idea here is that they were, that, that hey, these, these ladies were teammates. I mean, we were all working together. We were all on the same team here. We're all on the same side. And so Paul was recalling how these these two ladies used to to play and fight side by side with him in the battle for the gospel, but now they had turned their guns at each other. And the implication here is that he wanted them to stop fighting with each other and get back to the business of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think this is the most frustrating thing about disunity, disharmony, particularly in the body of Christ, is that you run around putting out all these fires in the church, which leaves no time to do the work of the ministry. And as we Christians sit around fighting amongst ourselves, there's lost souls out there dying and going to hell. Can you imagine the impact that churches could make if they spent as much time sharing the gospel? talking with others about the gospel, about Christ, as they do talking amongst themselves about all the problems of the church. I mean, that would revolutionize this community. If churches would get over themselves and Christians would get past themselves. And remember, what are we called to do here? We are called to be one mind, one heart, striving together for the work of the gospel. That's what he said in Philippians 1.27. So the final direction that Paul gave here to diffuse or dismantle disunity was to remember that our purpose as a church isn't to contend with one another, but to contend together for the cause of Christ, for the gospel. 
And as long as we keep that as our focus, why did God bring us all together? To spend the next 40 years fighting amongst ourselves? No. To fight for the gospel together. I want you to notice one more thing just as we wrap up this morning about this passage. And it's implied here. It's not specifically stated, but it's implied that even though a rift between Yodi and Satiki was there and it was great, it was severe enough for Paul to address it publicly, that, mean, that, that tells me it was a public rift. It was some, everybody knew about this conflict between these two ladies. Paul would have never addressed it publicly were it not. And so this was a huge issue. And yet Paul didn't think the problem was irreparable or that one woman might have to leave the church. The fact that he urged them to work on the problem implies here that there was hope that this relationship could be reconciled. And I think this passage gives us great hope that any two people can resolve the conflict between them by following this simple step-by-step process for biblical reconciliation. In other words, no situation is hopeless. No situation is beyond repair. There is no such thing as irreconcilable differences. And if we follow these five directions to resolve conflict, wounds can be healed, Christ's testimony can be maintained, and God's work can go on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and just how practical it is for the everyday conflicts and uh, loose ends that are so much a part of our lives. And Lord, we're humbled to have to admit that, but what do we do? We tend to run away from conflict. We tend to um, avoid it at all costs. When you tell us to, to stand firm, and not just stand firm, but to run towards the conflict, to go and to seek reconciliation, to be humble and confess sin and to be quick to forgive sin and to not hold grudges or offenses against one another. Lord, I pray that we would model these things, Lord, as a church. Uh, Lord, that that there would be no one in our church who would ever be guilty of being divisive or stirring up strife amongst brothers and sisters. We know Proverbs says that's one of the top six sins that you hate, those who cause cause strife and division amongst brothers. And so, Lord, I just pray that if if there are any Euodians and Tikis here, that it's not reached the level where it's public knowledge, but it's maybe behind the scenes that, that uh, they would go to work this week uh, and to implement these principles in their lives and in their relationships. Lord, if there's husbands and wives that are at odds with one another this morning, maybe parents at odds with children, children at odds with parents, or Lord, even maybe situations in the workplace, Lord, that we would all take this message to heart and, 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 and work at dismantling the, those ticking time bombs, Father, this week, and that you would just grant us grace, Father, to, to tie up those loose ends. Give us the wisdom, give us the courage that we need to do that this week. Lord, that we could truly come before you every Sunday, every Wednesday, whenever our church gathers together and know that there's no, um, nothing between us but that uh, all things have been made right before you. 
And Lord, we do this ultimately for the testimony of Jesus Christ. You've entrusted us with the gospel and to reach this community and this world with the gospel. And so, Lord, we don't have time to be fighting amongst ourselves or getting easily offended. And Lord, we, when we do, we've just lost focus of why we're actually here. And so would you bless us now as we go from this place, Lord, that we would contend for the cause of Christ and the gospel this week, uh, Lord, and uh, that when you bring us back together Wednesday night and even next Sunday or other things we do together this week, that we would have sweet fellowship together that we would truly be one mind, one heart, striving together for the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.